Where else can you choose from over 300 miles of epic single track against a backdrop of soaring mountains and cascading waterfalls? And where else can you explore 100,000 acres of public lands laced with hundreds of miles of backcountry gravel roads? Your best mountain biking adventure ever begins in Brevard, North Carolina, home to Pisgah National Forest and DuPont State Recreational Forest. Four Primo bike shops will get you sorted, whether you need a rental, service, or some cool swag. Top it off with an array of craft breweries, cafes, and gathering spots that have earned Brevard the title as one of America's coolest small towns. It all adds up to one of the premier mountain biking destinations in the U.S. Find out more at explorebrevard.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guests are Joel Smith and Steel Wisdom Wilhelmson. Joel is the brand leader for Reserve, a Santa Cruz, California brand that designs and markets wheels for everything from downhill to road biking. And Steel is an engineering lab technician at Reserve responsible for lab conditions wheel testing. Thanks for joining me, guys. Yeah, awesome to be here. Thanks. So, Joel, let's start out talking about wheels. How are wheels assembled? Like, and I'm particularly for high end wheels, like the wheels that Reserves Reserve makes. Are they assembled by hand, or how how does that work? Yeah, I mean, you know, the brand's grown a lot over the years, and you know, we've expanded into different categories. You know, we just started as from mountain, but then went into gravel. But you know, the big growth for the the business has actually been roadside. So we do have like multiple uh, assembly locations. So at each of those assembly locations, we, we do it a little bit differently. So like in Santa Cruz here, we're, we're doing machine building and then hand finishing. We, we do a lot of wheels at an assembly factory in, in Taiwan now, and, and they're doing a hundred percent hand building um, with a group of uh, individuals that have been working in building hand uh, wheels by hand uh, for for many many years. Most of the guys have been doing it for over ten years. But you know w- what we're really trying to do, regardless of where we build them, is just a QC standard that we're we're trying to achieve. You know, so we do have a factory in in Mainz, Germany, that's coming online this year as well, and they'll start building uh, carbon and aluminum wheels for us. And you know, again, that's like it's almost like qualifying a new vendor. But they'll be doing machine building with hand finishing like we do here in Santa Cruz. But uh, again, the, the main thing is just, just kind of meeting the pretty high quality standard we have for the finished wheels. Hmm. Okay. So Joel, are there like advantages to, to building a wheel one way or another? It seems like machine built, maybe are you going to get wheels that are like, I don't know, more precise and exact in terms of like spoke tensions and stuff? Or like, how do you decide which process is, is right? A lot of the reason we do machine building is for speed. I mean, obviously there's a consistency element, but we're still doing, you know, hand finishing at the end of the line mm-hmm. on, you know, the majority of the wheels that we machine build. So, you know, it it's just depends on like what that specific location is good at. Like I was mentioning the assembly partner we work with in Taiwan and they're really good at hand building, honestly, like mm-hmm. just kind of station individual hand wheel building. So they do that well. We do a good job of kind of this machine building and then hand finishing, you know? So mm-hmm. again, it's, you know, we're trying to achieve a specific result and, you know, doesn't really make a difference how we get there necessarily, you know, just depends on what, what the goals are that we're trying to achieve from a like volume standpoint. Okay. Gotcha. Well, Steele, 
I want to understand how rim construction contributes to ride feel, and particularly when we're talking about carbon rims. And people refer to that as like a carbon wheel set, but when you say wheel set, really it's the rim that's that's made from carbon. And one of the things I'm seeing lately in the mountain bike world is that a shallower rim profile is better than a deep rim for ride feel. Is that is that true? Is like what's What's kind of the state of the art in terms of like rim construction and design right now? That is, I think, the general consensus that a shallower shallower rim profile will be more vertically vertically compliant as opposed to if you had a deep dish, it'd be a much more stiff wheel, which for mountain biking, compliance is great. You have more traction, more comfort. Whereas for road riding, do the deep dish that aerodynamics come into play with that one. Hmm. So like a deep dish wheel will be less comfortable. You'll feel the road a little bit more, mm-hmm. but you'll be able to, I guess, cut through the wood a little better that way. Huh. Interesting. Well, previously, like why were mountain bike rims, I guess, like deeper than they are now? Was that like a manufacturing constraint or, or is it just we were going from road wheels and, and we're trying to figure out like how are mountain bike wheels different? Uh, I believe that is due to uh, strength. So a deeper profile wheel will be able to withstand harder impacts mm. as opposed to one that is low profile. It's a little more difficult to make it strong. Yeah. When it's, when it's shallower, like if you had a really flat rim, that's not going to be, it's not going to be strong enough. No, it's not going to be, might not be strong enough, but also might be too compliant. Mm. So you don't want a wheel that feels squishy and noodly. That's, you won't be able to feel, feel the trails too well. Yeah. So I think we're trying to find a nice middle ground between too squishy and too stiff. Mm-hmm. So part of that is playing with that rim depth profile and as the rims evolve, they do become lower profile, but it's kind of hard to say how much is too little, where does it get too squishy. Right. Yeah. It's sort of like, it's like handlebars, you know, it's like everybody keeps saying like wider, wider. And at some point it's too wide. And I'm guessing there's that point for rims where it's like, that's, that's going to be too shallow. I think so. Like, yes, with, with bars, of course you don't want too wide. It's not going to be comfortable. It's going to affect your riding style and how your bike handles. And the same applies to rims. You want, we're looking for a specific ride feel. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that is the depth of the rim. Width also plays a factor in that, although there's other factors as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think from my side, it's, pr- it's pretty interesting, like looking at the like history of carbon mountain bike rims. I mean, at the start, I think the primary goal was just strength right so mm-hmm. when you look at the designs that were done in the early years of carbon mountain bike rims you know there you, you can just tell by the design it was really focused on just making it strong you know so it wouldn't so it wouldn't break yeah that was everybody's objection they were like no way i'm not running carbon wheels because they were imagining that these were just gonna like explode and so you had to kind of like overbuild them maybe to like yeah, I think, you know, it's always the case, you know, you kind of go from one extreme to another, you know, in the development phases. So, you know, mm-hmm. when you just have one primary objective is is make it strong so you can get to the bottom of the race course, mm-hmm. you know, at a World Cup, 
you know, then of course, like with that objective, you design for a specific idea only. And so like a lot of those high profile rims were just designed to be really strong. You know, the downside of that is nobody could actually ride them. You know, they were, they, they wouldn't break, but they were also so stiff that right. like by the time a guy got to the bottom of the run, um, you know, he could barely hold onto the handlebars anymore. So, you know, if, if you look at like that start and where we are now, you know, I think that's where reserve has done a really good job is, you know, the, the segments are pretty nuanced these days, you know, and we've done a good job of developing different rim profiles and rim shapes for the specific type of riding the guy's going to do, you know. So if you look at where we are now, it's because we're trying to make them, you know, stiff, right, mm -hmm. uh, laterally. We're, we're trying to make them vertically really compliant. We're also trying to make them strong enough so they don't break. So, you know, it's just with these years of development that we've done on them, you know, we, the parameters have changed, you know, and, and the segments are more nuanced. So obviously like what the wheels are themselves and the rim shapes are, are quite different than what we started with. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, sticking with this uh, discussion about trends, another thing that it seems like buyers these days are really tuned into is how high the engagement is on the free hub. And obviously like the hub is a big part of a wheel, and so what what are your thoughts on that Joel like is there a certain number or like amount of engagement that, that the average person is going to need or like or is it is this one of those things where it's like is more is better Yeah I mean I I tend to think so I mean there there are some like high engagement hubs that were like clutch driven which you know gave people kind of a bad taste in their mouth about what instant engagement was going to be but mm -hmm. you know from my perspective and, you know, riding around here, when you, when you hit the pedals and the bike moves forward and it happens in a quick, um, succession, it tends to be a good thing. I mean, whether you're like, right. you know, trying to, you know, accelerate up something on an e-bike or you're trying to like wheelie off something that you just kind of had a no shit moment around, you know? So, mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we're really, you know, kind of going all in, um, on high engagement, you know, in the future and we, we see the benefits, um, you know, so like, I, I think, you know, our product line, you'll see more high engagement, you know, hubs across the lineup in the future. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought about e-bikes, but that makes a lot of sense where you, you really want that, like that instant engagement. Cause a lot of times you are, you want that power like right away. And if there's yeah, any there hesitation, it, there can awkward. be some motor lag as we know too, you know what right. I mean? So like, yep. You're not just, uh, you know, overcoming the, the motor, which is your legs. You're, you know, some of the, some of the uh, motors actually take like a second to get going. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you could have a high engagement hub that like kind of eliminates some of that lag when you're trying right. to like snap up something like that, which it's really, really beneficial. And honestly, I, I don't, I know there's still some, some, uh, curmudgeonly industry folks who are against high engagement, but you know, they were all, all they the same group were against 29ers and they were against mullet bikes and they were against e-bikes. And so, um, yeah, from my perspective, I, I just see it as a overall benefit, you know, especially if you can, the new ones, especially are very durable. You know, I think that was one of the concerns with the high engagement is maybe, maybe there'd be durability issues, but all the ones that we've been testing have been really good as far as durability. Hmm. Okay. So one more trend question for you, Joel, are wheel sizes and standards continuing to evolve? Obviously the wheel sizes, yeah, less so, but, but what about rim widths? Is that, you feel like we're kind of in a place where 
we figured out the ideal rim width for mountain bikes? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's obviously so dependent on where the where the person is actually riding, you know, mm-hmm. and what kind of tires they're, they're using. I mean, obviously, you know, cross country in Santa Cruz versus cross country in Bentonville, Arkansas, you know, are two different things. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, depending on the, the place the person is, maybe they have some specific tire sizes they want, but I would say in general, you know, most trail bikes are using two, five or, or, two, six labeled tires, which are basically seeming like the same size as <laughs> most of the two fives, depending on the brand. And then, you know, on XC, it's like, you know, the two fours seems to be the, mm-hmm. the standard tire. I mean, we do see some, some brands experimenting with two, five lightweight tires, like high volume tires on world cup racing these days. Um, but I, I would say most of the time, and if you look at our world cup race team, you know, they're using, you know, 2.4, maybe a 2.4 with a, 2.3 or 2.35 in the rear. So, mm-hmm. but I, I do, I do think that kind of, we're not going to be going back to 3.0 tires or uh, that sort of thing. And I definitely don't see uh, a situation with how the, the wider, the bigger tires perform of going narrower. So I do, I do feel like we're, we're in a better place as far as standards than, than a lot of the, the other component uh, makers in the industry. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so you're, sounds like you're saying this, you know, obviously it's, it's really tied to the tire width that people are running. Is that pretty settled though? Like 2.5 needs a 30 millimeter internal rim width or, or is there some play there where it's like, well, maybe 29, maybe 31, 32. I I mean, I I think that's our thought. I mean, like a a good example is, you know, our XC wheels 28 XC is 28 millimeter internal width, you know, and, and that, uh, that width with the 2.5, 2.4 tire, excuse me, that seems to be the optimal XC scenario. You know, there's enough volume, the tire is not overly flat or overly round, you know, I mean, that's, that's what you get when you put like a, a 2.4 tire on like a 22 millimeter width rim is, you know, then it's really round. Or if you put it on, you know, a, 31 or 32 millimeter width internal rim and then it's really you know tends to be very flat right Mm -hmm. so you know i I just think you know based on the profile of a lot of the 2.4 tires that 28 millimeter seems like you know perfect for the shape of the tire that people are running Hmm. yeah well steel since you do a lot of lab testing of uh mountain bike wheels road bike wheels as i mentioned you know in the olden days or like when, when carbon was a new thing for wheels, people were worried that they weren't as strong or, or they were going to kind of fail in a new and dangerous way. Are today's carbon rims stronger and more durable than aluminum? Yes, they are. I would not say that they're stronger by a huge amount, but yes, they are stronger. Hmm. And part of that is the failure mode that comes into play. Okay. Say with aluminum wheels, uh, if you hit a rock pretty hard, it's probably going to bend. Mm-hmm. And once you have a bent rim, there's kind of nothing you can do about it. It's going to stay there. You might be able to ride it. It might be okay for a good long while, but that bend is permanent. Yeah. So with uh, carbon rims, if you hit something, it will most likely not break. It's not going to bend. Nothing's really going to happen. You might get a pinch flat. Just when it does break, it'll crack and... Which that it takes a lot of energy to crack a good carbon rim. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, once that happens, it's it's shot. You have to get a new one, which is a bummer. They're expensive. Mm-hmm. But 
they will take more abuse than an aluminum rim without showing any damage. Hmm. Okay. Until that failure point. Gotcha. I mean, it's it's the weight too. You know what I mean? It's like when you look at what what you're gaining or or losing in weight. You know, for that that stiffness, right, and that durability. I mean, that's the real scenario where carbon is so beneficial. Is right? You get like, I mean, the negative side is obviously you're paying a lot more for the wheels. So, <laughs> right. Um, but you know, it's, it's like the old scenario, right? Like you. You know, for every gram you lose, you know, you, there's an extra dollar spent. And I right. think that's the example for, for carbon wheels. It's like, mm-hmm. just look at the, the strength and like steel was saying, you know, you look at the impact test that we do internally in the lab and you see the impact that it actually takes to to crack a carbon rim. I mean, it's, it's even every time I see it, I'm, I'm surprised <laughs> actually that they, they will sustain the kind of damage. But and you, you have that like strength and you have that weight, you know what I mean? So I think that's really where the benefit is. And then, then from a riding standpoint, that stiffness, I mean, right. you can't deny You can't deny the overall stiffness, but then you're talking about from $700 aluminum wheel set to $1,600 on a carbon wheel set. So. Right. right. And I think there's also the longevity that comes into play over time. Your aluminum wheels are going to wear down. They're going to suffer from, large or little impacts and overall gain a collection of those little dents as well as aluminum does fatigue. So after a long time of riding, you might start seeing little cracks coming around from around the nipple holes and then you have to replace your rim. Um, it might take a long time, but it's going to happen. Whereas the carbon, so long as you don't break it, it's probably going to last you a very long time without signs of wear. So are you able to see that in the lab still? Like, how, how long, how many times would you like load and unload uh, an aluminum rim before you start to see that like wear over time? Well, we do have a wheel fatigue machine in our lab. And simply put, we load a bunch of weight on a wheel and run, roll it over a drum with large bumps on it oh. <laughs> for a long period of time. Okay. And we've done aluminum wheels and carbon wheels on this machine. The aluminum rims, yes, we will eventually see cracking around the nipple bosses. Hmm. Even if the wheel survives the test overall, we will see some signs of wear. Okay. But yes, we, and yeah, we will not see signs of wear on the carbon. Carbon does not fatigue. Hmm. So if I'm like a regular rider and I've maybe had a set of like aluminum wheels for let's say two seasons, like, am I going to start to see that fatigue at that point? Or are we talking like thousands of miles or tens of thousands of miles? That's hard to say. It really depends on riding style. Rider weight, are they riding hard or gentle? Like there's a lot of factors in there. But after, generally speaking, after a couple of years, you will probably see some signs of fatigue of some kind. Okay. And so Joel, you you know, obviously pointed out that there's a big weight difference uh, between carbon and aluminum rims. Um, but, but obviously the rim is like just one part of the wheel system. And so, yeah, is it significant when we're talking about like a wheel set weight versus like just comparing the rims? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, the, with the rim weight increase, you're going to get an overall, you know, weight increase of the complete package. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I guess when I look at the use 
of carbon versus aluminum wheels. For me, it's, it's more about like what I'm intending to do rather than, you know, like a, as an example, like a, when it's really rocky and rudy, truthfully, I, I like riding the, the aluminum wheels because there's quite a bit of compliance, right? Mm-hmm. I'm still riding relatively aggressively. Um, but you know, like the harshness out of the bars, I, I definitely gets to me on a long downhill. So like I will use a aluminum wheel set in the case of like really rocky, really technical terrain because I want the additional compliance, you know, if it's smoother XC style, you know, then I'll really choose a carbon because it, it, it's not really the same parameters of, upon which I'm trying to kind of, you know, what I'm trying to achieve with my, the end result of my riding. So, you know, for me, it's like you get kind of caught up in, in, you know, stiffness and durability and all this stuff. But for me, you know, and one of the reasons why we did aluminum wheels is there's just places where I truthfully think carbon works a lot better. And I think there's places where aluminum wheel works, works a lot better, regardless of like cost or weight or, you know, you know, those, it's just like basically what you're trying to achieve as far as your riding. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Pros and cons of, of each. And obviously there's trade-offs um, in whatever material you choose. I'm curious about a couple of your different wheel sets. So reserve has, the 30 SL and the 30 HD, those are both, I mean, effectively they're like trail wheel sets, but at, at slightly different price points. And we see this with a lot of wheel brands where there's like, you know, the, the like super expensive carbon wheel set. And then there's like the more affordable set. So I'm curious, like what are the rims different for the reserve wheels specifically? Are you doing like different carbon layup or using a different material or like what separates those two wheel sets? Well, I mean, 30 SL and 30 HD are different rim tools. You know what I mean? So the 30 HD is like coming out of a different tool. It's a thicker rim. It's got a different layup, you know, it's got a higher strength. Mm -hmm. It's got a higher ultimate impact strength. So, you know, the intent was that was like a indestructible trail wheel set, you know, Mm -hmm. there's also a category of people who are riding like, a Santa Cruz tall boy, for an example, that, you know, don't need all of that wheel that a 30 mm-hmm. HD and would be better off on like a, a 30 SL. I mean, that's, that's a g- good question for me because I actually find the perfect wheel set for me personally, especially around here on Santa Cruz, where I'm riding like a, you know, 150 millimeter travel trail bike is running a HD in the rear and an SL in the front, you know, like I mentioned before, I, I like compliance, you know, and especially in the front, the 30 SL, you feel there's a little more compliance, mm-hmm. but then you get the strength of the 30 HD in the back. So for me, it's kind of like the best of both worlds. I mean, I understand that most people can't uh, buy two carbon wheel sets and do that. So we're in a unique yeah. position, but it does kind of illustrate the fact that, you, you know, kind of the intent of what the wheel is for and what you're trying to achieve, you know, and, mm-hmm. and we, we kind of make the wheel sets that like for any type of riding you want to do, we do have something that we've designed and developed for that. Yeah, that's cool. Well, Steel, what, what's the difference in these two, like in the lab? Is it like pretty, pretty significant between the SL and the HD rims in terms of testing? It is fairly significant, yes, mostly in terms of strength. Uh, of course, the HD is quite strong, whereas the SL still pretty strong, but definitely I would not recommend it for a heavy rider who likes to ride serious downhill, okay. uh, whereas the HD, yes, um, and the lab results do reflect that, as far okay. as including weight as well. The HD is a little heavier than the SL. Okay. 
Yeah. Gotcha. Well, yeah. I mean, how do you quantify that? Like, especially comparing those two, but maybe even comparing like a downhill wheel and a XC wheel, how do you quantify the strength? Is it like how much weight they can support? Like what is, what are you testing exactly? We primarily for strength, we primarily test for impact resistance. Okay. So we drop a weight on a built wheel with a tire at 25 PSI. Mm -hmm. All these parameters are kept the same, the hub, spokes, tire type, PSI, that's all the same regardless of what rim we're testing. Mm -hmm. So we only switch out the rim. Okay. And we quantify this in, well, I, I guess the end numbers we're going for are joules, mm. a measurement of energy, which we calculate by the amount of weight we dropped and how high was that weight above the wheel when we, re when we released it. Okay. Gotcha. And what is like, what is the shape of this? Is it like a wedge shape or is it like a rock shape? Like what? I would imagine that matters, right? It's, I guess, loose, loosely speaking, it's kind of a rock shape. I mean, the, the idea is that uh, we're trying to replicate what we saw in field failures, right? So like, okay. obviously, it's very seldom that a rim gets broken, you know, just like on a straight impact on the, the full rim, you know what I mean? So we designed this anvil that Steele's talking about to kind of replicate what the the real world conditions are, what we were really seeing. So, it, you know, it hits like, just like you'd hit a rock, right? Like yeah. it drops on the side of the rim and that's, that's how we see the field failures came in, come in. So actually it's our own tests that we've, we've designed and developed as well as this anvil, as well as these, these drop test parameters. So mm -hmm. it is our own internal test, but what we've, what we're trying to do is use the real world conditions that we've seen from field failures and trying to replicate that in the test lab, because we, we historically have found that that's successful in mm -hmm. making strong rims. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sorry, did you say, do you have a tire on it when you're doing these tests or are you dropping it right on? Correct. The, the we rim? use okay. a either 29 or 27, 2.35 tire. Okay. Yes. At, and it's always at 25 PSI, regardless of what the test is. Hmm. Okay. You're right. To, to make it consistent. Yeah. That yes, makes so sense. We always use a tire. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's back to replicating like real world conditions. It's like, you're not, you're not going to be like, what would be the use of doing the impact test without a tire? You're never going to be in the real world. Well, <laughs> right. not maybe right. in some down random downhill race, you might, the the tire might blow off the rim, but you know, we're trying to, we're trying to really show what actually happens in the field. So like impact testing a rim with no tire on it. Well, that that's never going to happen. So, right. you know, it's, it's better to actually try to do what's happening in the field in the lab than just come up with some random parameter and trying to test ribs. And I mean, we, we found that too. I mean, you basically can get a false negative for yourself and you're basically proving something that doesn't have any benefit for the end consumer. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Well then if we are, talking about real world, like what, what's the most common mode of failure when it comes to mountain bike wheels? Is it, is it a, a rock impact or is it fatigue? Like what, what usually happens to wheels that, that causes them to ultimately fail? Uh, I mean, it's, it's rock impacts on the carbon stuff. Like you, you just see curb impacts, rock impacts, sharp, sharp, hard surface impacts. You, okay. you know what I mean? Square edged hits. Yeah. And it's always that same, like, uh, you know, we've got, there's a, a bin of the warranty rims, you know, that have come back and, mm -hmm. you know, I always 
go out there and take a look and see what kind of real world fares are. And it's, it, you can just see what happened. You know, the, <laughs> you don't even have to landed. get the story. You can just look at it and be like, yeah, okay, land, you know, went off a little jump and landed on a, on a rock ledge or, you know, like missed bunny hop the curb, right. And slam mm-hmm. the into it, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty clear that that's, that's what's happening is they're, they're hitting, hitting a hard, mm-hmm. sharp object and, you know, breaking the rim. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I bet there are a lot of failures due to curbs. Like, I bet there's there's like a disproportionate number of those to like, yeah, actual riding on the trail and, and blowing it up. Curbs, curbs are nasty. Right. Yeah. And I, well, most- actually, I think they're just riding along on a clear sunny day on <laughs> a bike path. Yeah. It just, it just <laughs> happened. That's what right. we hear at least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody wants to admit it was in the parking lot. Yeah, so, so yeah. Speaking of, of rim failures and these impacts, like uh, what, what are both of your thoughts on tire inserts steel? Do you, you have any, do you ever even test those in the lab? It sounds like not, but, but what are your thoughts? We have not as of yet. It's been a consideration, but it's something that has been on the back burner for a long time. We have gone around to it, mostly because not many people use tire inserts. Mm, so yeah. it it doesn't it's not entirely worth it to go through all the testing for something that doesn't really get used. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. But we, I believe we have in the past, and yes, they do make a difference. They do absorb some of the impact and might even save your rim. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's not something we've really looked deeply into. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Joel? Yeah, I mean, I think that comes, for me, it comes, we're really racing focused, obviously. Like that is the brand ethos is racing stuff. And, you know, mm-hmm. Syndicate doesn't use tire inserts. Mm-hmm. None of the guys do. Even Greg. Greg never used tire inserts because he didn't like the the way the 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 wheels felt, the way the bike felt with the insert in the extra mass and the overall feel, you know, right. versus just an air tire. We we don't use them in in cross country racing. Um, you know, none of the the Santa Cruz Rockshox guys use inserts. Uh, Keegan occasionally uses inserts actually randomly, especially when he's doing gravel stuff, you know, he'll run a, Hmm. he'll run an insert in the rear, but like the, the, on the roadside, you know, team Visma Lisa bike that they'll run, you know, a Vittoria system potentially at Perry Roubaix, but you know, Perry Roubaix is Perry Roubaix. So, you know, we, we, we've thought about it and obviously there's a market for it and we're, we're a wheel brand. So we've thought about it from like, the use and a commercialization standpoint, but you know, what we found is just not that many, like seal said, not that many people are using them. I mean, Mm -hmm. a lot of the guys even here that at bottom, you ask them like, Hey, Hey, how's it going with those inserts? And they're like, well, they're still, you know, at home. Right. So I, I mean, I do, I do see like if I were, maybe if I were going to Whistler, Mm -hmm. you know, on a week's vacation and the top priority was not destroy my rims. I would maybe consider using a, a tire insert, but any other place I'm, I just, for us, it's like, we're not using them. The teams aren't using them. It's like, it's hard to get super excited and motivated for sticking this big, heavy thing inside uh, your wheel, unless there's like a real need at this point. Yeah. 
Right. I mean, you make a good point that none of us like using them. I mean, it complicates things. The tire handles differently, all kinds of issues with it. And so it sounds like the focus then instead is like, well, let's just make sure that the rim is able to to handle most of these impacts or more of these impacts uh, rather than having to, to throw yeah, an insert in there. Totally. And, and I, I, honestly, I think if we were like having like a super high failure rates, we would be like, oh, well, you know, like what, what could be the solution, you know, to, to this. <laughs> yeah, be an easy one. But, you know, the sports evolved a lot um, and we're not seeing an increase in, in the quantity and types of failures. I mean, like you look at what a, tra- a guy on a trail bike is doing today and it's pretty crazy. You know what I mean? Everybody's riding trail bikes, like downhill bikes these days. And we're not seeing like an increase in field failures. And I mean, I'm talking about the raw numbers when I like look at the stats, which mm-hmm. is, you know, unfortunately or fortunately something as part of my job I get to do, but you look at the stats and you're not like not seeing increases in the amount of failure, even like people are doing crazy stuff on trail bikes these days. So it's, it's like, again, it's like super hard to get motivated to, to have the, the why, why we would spend a bunch of time and, and I feel like if we, we always do stuff with the intent to like greatly improve whatever we're doing. I mean, Fillmore valve was a similar thing. You know, we were aggravated, mm-hmm. pressed of valves and, you know, low pressure flow, setting up tubeless and sealing mm-hmm. clogging, stuff like that. So it's like we had a, like a specific goal and a pretty, what we felt like was an important goal to try, try to achieve. And it's like an insert. It's like, what what would we bring to the market and what would be the benefit for the consumer? I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not bad mouth. I'm like, literally, if I was going on Whistler on my DH bike for vacation, I would put inserts in there because I would not want to spend any time, any downtime on my limited time dealing with a wheel issue, right? That's a pain in the ass. So, I mean, if you think about it in that respect, I'm like, okay, yeah, there's a really good use, but you know, would I ride them in Santa Cruz? No, I, I definitely wouldn't. You know, it's part of the conditions and part of the terrain and part of my riding style. But, you know, we're just not seeing great use of it here. Right. Yeah. Well, so obviously reserve, you guys are focused a lot, I mean, on the wheel system as a whole, but also on the rims. And related to the rims is the spoke lacing, right? Like how many holes are you are you drilling into these rims and, and how many spokes and how do you lace them uh, comes into play? So I want to ask both of you, and I'll start with you, Steele, like what role does the number of spokes um, and then potentially even the spoke lacing pattern play into a wheel's ultimate strength? All right. Well, for the number of spokes, this comes down to a little bit of weight and mostly stiffness. So, of course, more spokes is more weight. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants their bike to be a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to, like, just keep adding spokes until it's impossibly strong. <laughs> right. So, industry, industry standard as of late for most mountain bike wheels is 28 spokes. Mm-hmm. And that, that has been kind of just decided on as this is a good level of stiffness and strength. Mm. It's, a, it's a good balance between the two. Yeah. And keeping that number of spokes consistent helps out with production. All right, we can just do these all the same. Mm-hmm. Makes it very easy. It still puts out a very good product. And then you have less commonly is the 24 spokes. Okay. Which you'll see on like XC bikes and a lot of road bikes. Mm-hmm. So that's not going to be as strong. 
and it won't be quite as stiff either. It'll be a little more compliant. That's sometimes that's what people are looking for too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 a combination of strength and stiffness. What about you, Joel? Like, what what does that do for the ride feel specifically too? Like, does it matter how you lace them? Is that is that going to be like noticeable in terms of what you're feeling as the rider? Well, I mean, I think an interesting use case is the aluminum wheels. You know, the we had the in existence the 30SL carbon and 30HD carbon when we started working on the aluminum rims. You know, mm-hmm. and one of the the interesting thing was was the number of spokes because in the end we actually ended up with with 28 spokes for the 30SL aluminums and 32 for the 30HD aluminums and and really what we were trying to do is we were trying to have like similar category wheel sets right and similar stiffness for different wheel sets well we couldn't really achieve the stiffness we wanted without the 32 spokes on the aluminum wheel so there was mm-hmm. a good reason to use them there mm-hmm. like steel said i i think especially when you look at a carbon wheel today you know we're only using 32 spokes on dh level stuff mm-hmm. you know where you really need the stiffness and you really need the strength you know and then on the trail bikes the the carbon rims are so strong you know what i mean like yeah that's the that's the primary area of strength on them so you know having 28 spokes is more than sufficient and obviously we're seeing that in real world applications i mean even even so much so that like last year on the front of a uh, the front wheels on uh, V10s for the syndicate, mm-hmm. they were actually using 30 HD rims, you know, 28 spoke mm-hmm. HD rims mm-hmm. just for, for not, not for the really rocky tracks, but some of the smoother tracks to get some more compliance out of it. So mm-hmm. I really think, you know, it can be like rim design, you know, the spoke can kind of contribute to the overall feel and the parameters you're trying to make the wheel for, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, it's just kind of depending on what you're trying to do and what kind of stiffness goals you're trying to achieve. Yeah. Interesting. Well, for this next question, I'm really glad that I have both of you because I think maybe there's going to be different perspectives on this. So I'm curious about super boost hub spacing. And, you know, from the marketing perspective, you know, from for you, Joel, especially if you're a bike company, just to have super boost, it's kind of like a controversial decision because people are like, oh, no, another standard but what are your thoughts on it? Like, is it actually a better product that that's going to make wheels stronger? Or are there benefits to to going super boost if if you are choosing a bike? Well, I mean, I think better is can be subjective, right? Right. Um, but the key thing for me is like, yeah, you're going to get a slightly stronger wheel, right? Like for sure, mm-hmm. going super boost. But you know, it's it's a minor benefit for the potential or no for the real negatives which one is a new standard. I mean, I don't think if you're a consumer uh, dealing with standards, is such a nightmare in the bike right. industry. I mean, when you're really trying to like build the bike up for frame or get replacement parts and there's how many different headset standards and bottom <laughs> yeah, steps headsets are terrible. standards. It's like that, that alone is a huge turnoff, I think for me personally. So Again, you're getting a slightly stronger wheel, but you're a new standard, you know, that mm-hmm. you have to deal with. And then, you know, just the bikes that, that I've actually ridden myself, I, I, I have trouble. I have big feet. Mm-hmm. I'll give you that, you know, size 12s. And I hit my heels on the swing arm. Mm-hmm. And I will almost do anything to avoid that problem. You know what I mean? I would <laughs> yeah. go back to 135 rear wheels if it meant that uh, <laughs> I could avoid hitting my heels. I mean, that is yeah. just such a, a big negative. So, so yeah, okay. Yep. Super Boost is doing one thing and then creating a bunch of other problems. So I personally am, am just not 
seeing a big reason to go there. I mean, and then what's the next step? Do we have super duper mega boost, you know, and we're at <laughs> 180 because that's even slightly stiffer, you know, it's like, wh where, did, where does it end? And I, I do feel like, again, Steele was talking about balance, you know, balance mm -hmm. is really key. And I think where we are with boost, it's like, it's the standard now. So it's not very complicated for the consumer. It's stiff, you know, and it, it definitely advantage versus like 142 where we're at without kind of all, all the negatives that are going to, you know, come with it. So it's just like back to cost versus benefit. It, I just don't see the the benefit versus the negatives. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, Steele, do you see that in any of the lab testing? Like, have you been able to compare between like a boost and a super boost wheel set? And I mean, is it, is it noticeable in terms of strength? Well, it's been a while since we tested. We have tested this before. Oh, it's been a couple of years at least. <laughs> but yes, so downhill wheels as a whole, not just the boost spacing, the hub width, but the downhill wheels as a whole, we have tested for stiffness. Mm -hmm. So we can compare that data to your regular boost wheel. Mm -hmm. And yes, downhill wheels are definitely more stiff, both laterally and radially. Mm -hmm. And I do believe the, the bracing angle of the spokes is a big part of that. So you have the 148 boost or the 157 super boost, right. which is only, it's only a nine millimeter difference. It's not that much. Yeah. So it probably does add a little tiny bit of stiffness to the wheel, especially laterally, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's all that significant. Yeah. Uh, most of that stiffness between downhill wheels and HD say is mostly the rim, not the hub. Okay. Gotcha. So I think, I do agree with Joel that adding boost and super boost and not just one does unnecessarily complicate your options. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it's not, you know, if, you, if you're looking for a stiffer wheel, super boost is not, not the way to go. I mean, I think there are lots of other reasons for super boost in terms of chain line and, you know, other things that the bike brands are trying to do with that. But it, but wheels, that's not an area where, you know, a wheel company like reserve is saying, Oh, this would really help us make stronger wheels. Like it's, it's not, it's more just something you guys deal with. Right. Well, I mean, if you, if you just like in, in a vacuum asked us what, what the thing we would do to increase the stiffness of the wheel, that's not the first thing we would do. Tell you <laughs> that's that. not it. No. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. So Joel, I want to ask you about mountain bike wheel warranties, um, particularly from sort of the, the branding and marketing side. You know, that's obviously a big part of any carbon wheel set is, is the warranty that the brand offers. Do riders, though, do they actually make a lot of claims? Like, is this is this something that, like, is a good value for people or is it more just like something that, that they probably won't have to take advantage of, but that, you know gives them peace of mind. Yeah. I mean, you, you hope you did all the work, right. That you're not having rims that are failing in the fit field, you know, and I mean, all this testing that steel does, and, you know, we, we haven't really talked about it in detail, but there's a, there's a lot of internal testing that we do and, and lab tests that we set up for ourselves, you know, that are based on real world conditions of what we've seen in the field that we actually know make an impact in, you know, the reliability of the wheel for the customer, mm -hmm. you know, at the same time, you know, our, our brand, our whole brand premise is, is lifetime warranty. I mean, we do it on the aluminum wheels. We do it on Fillmore valve. We do it on the, on the carbon rims. Um, you know, our, our whole uh, brand 
was based on trying to build a carbon rim that would support a lifetime warranty. Like that's how we came to fruition mm. as a wheel brand is, is trying to, to make a strong enough rim that we believed in that could support a lifetime warranty. So I personally love it because it gives us this high level of confidence, you know, and you're shooting for the stars instead of right. Like <laughs> you're going for the ultimate thing instead of like some base measurement, you know? So you know, when you, you have a design, you have a manufacturer, you have testing in place that can support a lifetime warranty, you have a high level of confidence. So I, I think that confidence, obviously, for a customer, you know, it's, I, I do think there's some worry from, from customers today that, mm -hmm. you know, things will break and things do break, you know. And I, I think we've done such a good job over the years of providing real lifetime support to customers and be reasonable people and, you know, treat people who who come to us with warranty problems as, as if they were us and we want to get them resolved and get them riding. And I, I do, you know, I, I do think that we, we, you know, kind of set the standard mm -hmm. in the bike industry as far as wheels yeah. and lifetime support, you know, everybody changed their warranty policies after we did it, especially, you know, it's kind of laughable on aluminum mm -hmm. wheels. Everybody was telling us you can't do lifetime warranty on aluminum wheels. And we did it. And then everybody else followed, <laughs> you know, but I, I do, I do think it's just for us, it's just, it's part, it's part of our brand promise. It's part of our brand ethos. And we do get riders who come to us with claims mm -hmm. actually relatively consistent every year, you know, which tells us we're doing a good job, um, you know, designing rims and you, you, you hope not to create problems for customers because I mean, if somebody breaks a rim, it's still paying the ass, right? Right. So you're trying to avoid that, but you know, it's just such an important of the brand. I, I mean, I just, I think overall it does, does us such a, good job of explaining what we are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it almost sounds like you're saying that the warranty is sort of a proxy for the quality and the confidence that a brand has in their wheel set, right? Like you're not, you know, if, if you're a consumer and you're trying to decide between two wheel sets and you're looking at the warranties and you're like, well, this one's lifetime, but this one is lifetime, but doesn't cover crashes or whatever. So really you're not comparing warranties. What you're comparing is you know, how confident is the brand in, in their product and not necessarily like assuming that you're going to have to actually use the warranty. That's exactly right. It, it's just the word you said is when you were talking there, I was like confidence, you know what I mean? It's like mm -hmm. we have confidence, gives the consumer confidence, gives our rider support people confidence, gives our dealers confidence, it gives our salespeople confidence, you know, because we just are standing with kind of this flag in the sand, you know, saying like, yeah, well, we believe in what we what we do. Mm -hmm. This is a super important aspect, you know, to give customers confidence, and we we feel very confident in what we're providing the customers. Mm. Yeah, Steele, are you involved in the the warranty process at all in terms of testing? A little bit. I will sometimes receive wheels that have been broken mm -hmm. under maybe some questionable circumstances. Who knows how it happened? So, all right, they'll send this back to me. I will inspect the carbon layers or the break, the the failure method mm -hmm. or how it broke Yeah, and give some feedback on, okay, was this rim, was it defective or was this maybe more rider error? Mm -hmm. And I can give some information on that based on my lab experience. Yeah. 
That's cool. It's like you're like CSI for like <laughs> rim failures. Essentially, like somebody yes. somebody drive over this with a car, or did right. they launch off a thing? Or yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's fairly obvious. Like, all yeah. right, yes, yeah, somebody definitely smashes. They, they, I have seen rims that have been ran over by cars. All right, this is mm. definitely not our fault. <laughs> or occasionally, very, very rarely, I'll see a rim where maybe there's like a void in the carbon. And okay, this is a manufacturing error. Let's get this person a new wheel. Hmm, interesting. Steel, I got a question for you. Mm-hmm. When I when I come back to the lab and I'm carrying a bunch of rims that have cracks in them, are you scared of me at that moment? Or <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. That's that's exciting for me. All right, I have something interesting to do. I get to take these apart. I have to cut them up, to get out the camera, take some real good close-up pictures. This is fun. Yeah, Jeff, it's, it's, this is this is a t- pretty typical scenario as I'm dragging a rim back into the test area to steal. Because honestly, I'm curious. You know what I mean? Like, mm, yeah. I think every warranty case, I'm like, like, not like so proud that, you know, we make the best rims, which I do think we do, but I'm like, what, what happened here? You know, like what, what is the thing that occur, occurred here? You know what I mean? So we can evaluate and make improvements. And most of the time it's like, it's just like a curiosity. And then Steele and I are talking like, Whoa, look at that. That's super interesting. What, it, what, what was that heat that he, he did there? Was it a defective rim? Like maybe it was a carbon layup issue. Maybe it wasn't, you know? So I, I do think it's like a little bit of, true crime detective work, you know what I mean? Yeah. That, that still does. But when I wander back there, I'm always thinking, oh, God, Steel's, Steel's wondering what I have planned for him today. Yeah. Yeah, you guys should make a video of Steel, like, in the lab, you know, make it like a like a CSI spoof of him, like, investigating <laughs> these wheels. That would be funny. Hey, we, could, we could do that. Well, finally, Joel, I want to ask you, uh, what's kind of your your – bottom line advice to mountain bikers when they're choosing a wheel upgrade? Is it all about like buying the most expensive wheel you can get? Is, is it like carbon is the right thing for everybody? Like what, what advice do you give to people when they want to upgrade? No, as I kind of alluded to before, it's like buying for your, your needs and your style, you know, like mm-hmm. if, if you're riding like once a month, you, you honestly, you don't need the, $2,500 carbon wheels, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, it's not your primary objective, you know, and you're not doing it some, but you know, at the same time, it's like, if you're, if you're riding seven days a week, you know, I'd, I'd spend the money on the really the best wheel set you can possibly get. I mean, there is a difference in, you know, based on the cost. Um, and also the kind of riding you're trying to do, you know, like, as I mentioned before, like when it's really rocky and really, really rooty, I, I tend to prefer the aluminum wheels because of the added compliance. So, you know, I would say, um, don't overspend for sure. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think there's, you can get caught in a trap where you think just spending money is the solution to the problem, but right. at the same time, underspending isn't good either. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You, mm-hmm. you don't buy a set of wheels from whichever brand that's not gonna you know provide the durability you need and then you're honestly you're just buying more of stuff and you're spending a lot of downtime dealing with it and that's not good so you know i would say you know really really try to understand what 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 your goals are and then try to spend and buy the wheels that are appropriate with what you're trying to do yeah. Awesome. That's great advice. Well, Joel and Steele, thank you both for uh, taking the time to, to chat and answer some of our questions about mountain bike wheels. Really appreciate it. 
Oh, thank you. It's been a joy. It's been great. Thanks, Jeff. Awesome. Well, you can find more information about Reserve Wheels at reservewheels.com. Uh, that's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.